I'm Caddy. I'm Bailey. And I'm Teffer. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club, and you're invited. Yeah! yeah. We'd like to take this time to acknowledge that the studio where we record, and by the way, this week, Caddy and I are both recording in the studio. You might notice that Caddy does not sound like she's on a call. We both have been double vexed and waited the appropriate time to build antibodies, and we're so thrilled to be back at it in person. It feels really good. Oh, Yes, it does. But before we get into all that, (laughs) we'd like to acknowledge that this studio uh, is situated within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As settlers, for those of us who are settlers, it's important that we remember when the lands we occupy are not our own, and that we engage in conversations that challenge the colonial mindset, which obviously in Canada right now is happening, uh, and you should be part of those conversations. We encourage you to take some time today and every day to reflect on your relationship with the land you live on and the indigenous communities of that area. We're continuing our summer read-along. It's the sisterhood of uh, Traveling Pants numero two, or as I've been reading it, Four Girls in a Jean, (laughs) the second summer, (laughs) as I've been reading the series in French. Can you say it in French, please? I can say it in French. Quatre en jean, le deuxième été. (laughs) <laughs> such a wonderfully terrible title like the title of the second book is very boring and bad in english also but like oh boy caddy is it as bad in french as it is translated yes okay. yes yes it's as i'm not gonna say bad like because it's not like the translation is quite good it's a translation into like French from France, which is funny because, like, I am not from France, mm-hmm. so I don't have all the European references that they've included in there. So, like, when they talk about, like, uh, when they talk about certain, when there's certain moments, like, uh, for example, when Tibby introduces herself in her, uh, at her uh, university filmmaking program or whatever, people have to say things about themselves that starts with the, sa- that they like, that starts with the same letter as their name. And mm-hmm. they talk about, like, it's like, my name is Tibby. I like um, these candies that are called tagada. And uh, and I was like, that's not it. And then I was like, oh, they really had to change all the reference points because, well, a lot of things that you name in uh, the American book make no sense to people in Europe. So yeah. it was it was interesting mm-hmm. to kind of navigate that kind of weird code switch. Because in the books, that's tater tots. Yeah, which... Le tater wouldn't tot. start le tater tot. with the- <laughs> <laughs> le tater tot. which would work in quebec it would work that's the funny thing is 100%. that that reference would work absolutely fine in quebec yeah but it's translated True. for a french audience yes yeah absolutely that's so interesting what other things have you run around run in, run around with what other things have you run into with the translation i'm so curious now oh okay so um the whole okay so oh, i have opinions valia Mm-hmm. is called Mamita in French, what? which I was like, but she's Greek. Why are we calling her Mamita? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and like, is that her first name? That's or... that's what they refer to her as. So, because um, because that's what I guess Greeks call their grandparents in French. I don't know. And uh, but like Papu had didn't change. So I thought that that was interesting. And then um, (laughs) they don't call it Santorini. They call it Santorin, um, which is (laughs) odd as well. That feels like a very French thing to do to me to take this name that is a Greek name and be like, we're going to Francicize it. Yes. And (laughs) um, and at the same time, make it so super Spanish sounding so um, I was really confused because there were moments where I was like because I I read the first one in English the second one in French and then no I read the first one in French also Um, but it was still weird to kind of read through it and just be like are you talking about Carmen's mom is this who who is Mamita (laughs) I was like who is the Mamita Um, so yeah so uh, that was odd but it was still a good one day read (laughs) (laughs) it looks shorter is that just the i wonder if they cut stuff out we're comparing the spines of our books currently Mm. there's probably just a ton of extra material in mine at the end like three chapters of the next book oh yeah it could also be like a difference in like edition because i have the first book in a in like a special like movie tie-in edition and they have the other three in, like, the original covers that are, like, you know, like, a solid color and then a picture of pants on the front. And they are substantially bigger than the movie tie-in edition. Okay. Yeah, actually, I just got the third one. So I, I lent out my third, like, first edition one at some point and never saw it again, which I'm a little annoyed about because now they're on eBay for, like, a lot of money because they're first edition. But um, so mm. if you're listening to this and you have that, please give it back to me. <laughs> I, I would like to have it back. So I ordered a, like, new one for the third book, and it is, like, half the size. So maybe it's a font mm-hmm. difference as well. That's possible. Because it does have the fancy font. The original ones are, are quite, like, hefty books. They are. They are. I remember the first uh, the first read-through experience was kind of one of those, like, oh, I didn't expect this book to have quite so much heft. Um, but I also have to say on font, the letters that the sisterhood writes each other those fonts are horrible they're terrible i think one of them is com- i think yes that is the one in particular that i was thinking about it's just so odd and i don't know how they made the choice that their personalities would match their fonts so lena has like a super like swirly whirly kind of writing and b uh, because she's like brash and intense and uh fat god (laughs) Um, hers is written in bold in like block letters and then carmen's is kind of illegible because i don't know what they're trying to do with carmen Uh, and yeah and then tibby's is just dreadful it's like comic sans it is (laughs) i oh god okay so i need to refer to the font before i get ahead of myself i feel like in this era this is like 2003 2004 one of my like top activities was opening a word processor and trying out every font. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is the era where you could set your MSN, like you could change your font on MSN Messenger. And you had to like, think about it. You had to choose the font that reflected your personality. Mm-hmm. Oh my or God. like your mood. Like if you were sad, you would make it blue. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, like, I feel like 
these font choices, while objectively terrible, are very early 2000s. So, Caddy, being 10 years-ish older than us, a little less than mm-hmm. that, is that a cultural experience that you share? <laughs> I'm very curious. Um, no, uh, because I was almost 20 in 2003. <laughs> so it's a bit odd. Well, that was, and you would like leave cryptic, you could leave away messages. So you'd leave a cryptic message. Well, what I would do is leave a cryptic message to try and get whatever boy I was flirting with to like pay attention to me. Oh um, so like, you know, his <laughs> quote from his favorite band or something like that. Um, but you could also use like, we didn't have emojis yet, but you would do emoticons and you'd do like the elaborate. Yeah, it was fancy. I was never very fancy, but um, mm-hmm. I was just more about the like really gutting emo quotes oh yeah so so see for me those years were deep years of like napster was gone so i was like still building playlists for myself based on certain moods and like burning cds and stuff like that and that was that was pretty important for my development but messenger also played a large role but i think icq may have played an even bigger role for me in the late Mm. 90s than messenger I used ICQ and I used AIM Messenger. I don't think I used MSN Messenger. But see, I always find mm. it very interesting when I hear you talk about your experience because my sister, who is 36 now, so a little younger, was like, she's she's six years older than me and she was like the cool kid for me and she was the person I always tried to emulate and the reason I showed up to ninth grade wearing grunge in like 2003 <laughs> um, and then was like, why isn't everybody else also wearing high school clothes? So, like, you mentioning ICQ for me was, like, a very direct link to, like, my cool big sister in her Junkos on ICQ, (laughs) like, and her, like, tattoo choker that all the youths are wearing again. And, like, Mm, and then that was what I used because I wanted to be exactly like her. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. That's that that brings me so much joy. Also, I think your sister and I should have tea because, like, <laughs> she just moved to Vancouver, but I can put you in touch. I like that. I like that. Um, shall we uh, um, just maybe do a little dig? Like, what is what? How'd you feel about uh, this one versus the first one, Bales? I have like a very interesting relationship to these books in that, like, they are like they still fall into the category of problematic faves for me just because of the like I had a very intense emotional connection to these books when I was younger and like I will still pull them out every once in a while when I like just need something like cotton candy to read yeah so I feel like I mean at least this book has less of the um 15 year olds dating 19 year olds uh (laughs) Which and, which uh, I appreciate. Unless you talk about Bridget's mom, which when we got to that storyline, I was like, so this is where it comes from. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that's like you 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 learn about. Yeah, you learn about that, which is oof, just kind of heartbreaking. And it is at least <sighs> I think not painted in a positive light. I will say mm-hmm. there's heavy yeah. judgment yeah. from the grandmother. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Time. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Continue. You're right. Like we don't, we don't get a positive depiction of her dad. I feel yeah. like one of the things that I like, I do think there's some interesting, like explorations of like parent child relationships in this book. Not always done well, but like <laughs> there's some, 
<laughs> like not always like they don't always address the things that are very like problematic in the parent-child relationships as much as I would like them to. Do you want to give us an example? Because I can think about six off the top of my head, but um, at least is there one that comes to mind for you? I mean, yeah, it's pretty much all of them, but um, fair. I think particularly like. I'm thinking particularly about Tibby's relationship with her parents and how she has, like, some really valid, like, feelings of sort of, like, neglect Mm -hmm. and, like, low-key abandonment towards her parents, which, like, basically it ends up being written off as, like, she just needs to try harder and, like, cut them more slack. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Which, like, I don't, I don't love that as a takeaway message. And... Same with Lena's mom. Yeah. Lena's mom also, also, yes. And, like, to an extent, also Carmen's mom. Um, Like, there's a lot of, like, expecting... There's a lot of expect... Like, there's this standard of expecting them to treat their parents as peers. And, like, their parents expecting to be treated, like, as peers in that, like... Like, they should be able to have equal expectations of each other, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, we really see that. I'm I'm thinking, like, as you say this, I'm thinking of Lena's, like, conversation with her mom that, like, sets off that conflict. When Lena's like, hey, I'm really curious about this thing. And her mom's like, we're just not talking about that. I don't want to share that with you. And Lena says, well, how about mm-hmm. if there's something I don't want to share with you? And she says, well, let's not forget who's the mom and who's the kid. And that, I feel mm-hmm. like, really exemplifies this double standard that's being upheld in the books. Mm-hmm. Um, I promise yeah. that I wasn't going to just talk about the things I don't like and I promise that's not true but this is one that really really bothered me that double standard of I don't I don't owe you honesty I don't owe you transparency but you owe me transparency that was very very prevalent in 2000 media and one of the things I think of um, is Spanglish with uh, Adam Sandler (laughs) Caddy just made a horrible face I have not thought of that thing for a while but there's there's a scene where she says to her mom I need some space and her mom says there's no space between us and that's like that's a moment that I think of a lot and that really I feel like that was very normalized at this time absolutely Mm -hmm. yeah but I actually it's funny because it's something that you're you're saying that you don't really like in the story and I actually that was one of the moments in the story that I really enjoyed because okay. I was like, this feels familiar. That like, um, you know, your, your your parents are boomers and grew up in this context of like children are meant to be uh, seen and not heard and like have lived through with no love and no hugs and things like that. And then, you know, those parents are trying to do better. But as soon as they hit certain walls, they kind of revert back to the same behaviors that their parents have had so that for me was actually one of those moments where I was like oh I know this moment I've Mm. I feel like that's like a good number of interactions that I've had with my parents at that age and you know it's that thing where they didn't know how to justify things and they didn't necessarily either also know how to have conversations with their kids which I find this book shows so well mm-hmm. parents who don't mm-hmm. know how to speak to their kids and are just like i am the law i am your parent you owe me respect and then you kind of yeah. go like wow in like 15 years boy have we changed our tune mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, it's interesting because like there are ways in which like those are very realistic, relatable experiences. I would have liked them to be less like normalized and okayed by the book, I guess. Yeah. Because we are trying to not exclusively just talk about everything that we hated. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to say two things that I did like that I do like about mm-hmm. this book. I do, I do like, um, I like Tibby's storyline a lot, particularly yeah. in re the sort of like trying to get in with a certain crowd and realizing that they are making her be a person she doesn't like to be like i i like i like that storyline quite a bit and i also um again like we can we can pick it apart and there's like probably lots of things that aren't perfect about it but i do also like i like tibby's grandmother and i like not tibby's grandmother Bee's grandmother and like the ways in which she is really just like trying to be there for her and like meet her at where she's at. Actually, one of the things I was going to say to what Caddy was saying about parents before is the role of grandparents coming into the book and the role of grandparents saying, oh, you were a kid once too. And I think Bee being able to see her mother as a teenager makes a really big difference. Mm-hmm. I, I liked this one better than the first one. Like this read through I enjoyed more. And I found less. <laughs> we haven't touched on the fat phobia yet. And that is... Deep sigh. <laughs> it is It is worse than I remembered. Oh, my God. So that was real unpleasant. But there's... In, in our last episode, we talked about how the girls don't talk to each other mm-hmm. and don't hold each other accountable. And nobody's saying, eh, maybe this isn't a good idea. And in this one, we see that happening. We see them actually having mm-hmm. conversations. There were conversations that remind me of conversations I've had with my friends, especially I'm thinking about like the one with Lena and I think it's Carmen when Lena's saying like, but why is Costas pushing me away? And she's like, well, you, you, broke, you broke up with him. You broke up with him. And Lena's like, mm-hmm. but I didn't say I never wanted to see him again. And Carmen's like, well, you broke up with him. Like, oh. um, and I, yeah. I, I know that we talked about the problematic dynamics in Lena and Costas's relationship in the last book. But I find Lena's storyline, romantic storyline, deeply relatable in this one. There is an element of kind of romance novel of the the guy coming across the ocean to find her. Like there are there are things in it, you know, running across the dewy lawn in your nightgown. Um, <laughs> gosh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yep. But a, I found that devastatingly romantic when I was a teenager and (laughs) (laughs) and we've talked about my maybe unhealthy definitely unhealthy tendency to romanticize older men when I was a teenager Um, but the experience of Lena projecting her feelings internally and never articulating them and then going why don't people understand my feelings is something I relate to on such a personal level this idea of like yes I know what I did I know I broke up with him I know I broke up with him in a shitty terse letter but surely he's been able to feel the force of my longing from the (laughs) other side of the world and understand that what I want is for him to make the decision for me because I am terrified of putting myself out there and being vulnerable. Yeah. Now that you've said that out loud, how do you feel? (laughs) (laughs) So you can see my face now. (laughs) But it is, I mean, this is a tendency I have. This is a tendency I have, and this is a tendency that I've been working with over the last few years and acknowledging. 
it's a tendency I had as a teenager. And <laughs> as a teenager, reading that was really helpful. And I think especially reading Lena and Carmen play off each other mm-hmm. because I related to both of them in different ways. Carmen's very impulsive. Carmen speaks her mind. Carmen doesn't think before she speaks and she hurts people and Lena is the opposite Lena doesn't say things doesn't voice her needs doesn't voice her desires and then gets really resentful when people don't anticipate them and I think that's that's a very valuable interplay to have that's a very valuable uh, character dynamic uh and and I resonated with it and I liked it on this read through yeah yeah that's super interesting. And I mean, it's a very adult analysis of it, which is which is kind of nice and allows for some some self-compassion, too. Because mm-hmm. even just hearing you say it, like, my blood is boiling, but I'm like, oh, yeah, OK, I also seem to have perhaps some traits of those. Um, and maybe that's why, like, Lena rubs me the wrong way. Mm-hmm. It's because I see a lot of myself in that character. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, it's a bit I found it a bit much. But I definitely appreciated how dramatic Lena is. Like, I think that, you know, there, there's there's very much this tendency to characterize Carmen as the dramatic one. Hashtag racism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, like, Lena is actually so so dramatic because what she wants it, it's like the secret yeah she's basically the secret character because she's like through the power of attracting things in my brains it's gonna happen costas is going to love me forever and then he's going to betray you and ruin your heart but um it's still really kind of interesting and especially because they like we get more of effie um yeah. lena's sister in this book and she's really like presented as a character who's like incredibly dramatic and annoying and and all of that but lena outdoes her like 10 to 1 i love effie i i have said this before like effie gets more and more of a voice as the books progress and i love effie so much and i love effie as a foil to lena Mm -hmm. and one of the things i really appreciate about effie's character is that yes we have effie presented as the little sister who's you know maybe more shallow and more loud and more boppy but i like that lena is always aware like i feel like lena is aware that effie is not as dramatic as she is i feel like lena like knows with absolute certainty that she is drowning in her feelings and effie is like you know just functioning and also being age appropriate right because that's the other thing is lena has which i think is another thing that drew me to this character as a teenager this yearning for maturity this yearning to operate beyond her years which we talked about in the last Mm -hmm. book as well but lena really wants to function like an adult and she wants to have this adult romance that has all this kind of sweeping, but with none of the communication that adult ro- romances unfortunately appear to require. That also feels <laughs> like a very early 2000s kind of situation. Because mm-hmm. if you think about like the other cultural f- like phenomenons happening at that time, it's like Dawson's Creek, um, you know, like that are targeted to the same type of audiences. So it's all these shows where these characters have these sweeping love stories 
and talk a lot but don't say much Mm -hmm. and so it's like it's very much in the air that like you know relationships are supposed to be easy like this is when this is when Carrie and Mr. Big are together you know like and (laughs) and it's like it's okay it's all gonna work out no matter what kind of thing so so there is something pretty interesting about framing it that way I find that's that's kind of Mm -hmm. fun there's this idea which I, I think has come up before when we've talked, but this idea that you don't talk to boys the same way you talk to your friends. And I think, actually, if, I, if I'm going to give like a generous reading, I actually think that this book challenges that because we have Brian, who is Tibby's friend and who is in love with her and who Tibby doesn't see as a realistic love interest because he's not, he doesn't have this sort of cool distance. He's somebody who's always there and who's always available and always wants to talk to her. And, you know, we've read the series. We know where that ends up eventually. But on the other hand, we have Carmen's incredibly awkward storyline with Porter. (laughs) Oh, I love it so much, though. Hashtag Carmen is gay. But, like... That's why... (laughs) The experience, and again, something I relate to, the experience of going out with somebody because you feel like you should, and then just being like, I have nothing to say to you. Um, And then again, we get the classic Carmen of like treating him (laughs) really badly because she's just trying to figure her shit out on her own terms and is not thinking of people as people, but is thinking of people as like CPUs a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) she's thinking of porter as an accessory essentially yeah she's she's so again like this internalized she's so absorbed in her own drama that she's not thinking mm-hmm. about other people yeah. as full people which is maybe the most accurate representation of being a teenager we've seen 100 percent 100 percent and i do love the way that that gets processed like you you we have her at the end being like I think I didn't realize you were a person. Yeah. And it's like, oof, what a thing to say to somebody, but also true. And also Porter stands up for himself at the yeah. end of the book. And and I thought that mm-hmm. that was quite satisfying also to see a guy take the yeah. sensitive route and be like, hey, I need to take care of myself. And you're not a good person for me right now. So deuces yeah. kind of thing. And I think that that's, that's a nice change of pace because the guys in these stories are kind of want want if I'm being honest um so that's pretty that's pretty nice but it's true poor Carmen oh boy <laughs> Carmen and her feelings yeah. and I love it but I had a challenge I was challenged by the fact that um Carmen is really poised as a as the nurturer and there is no one nurturing her and um, mm-hmm. I, I think that really played into like I've I've always identified probably more. Uh, well, I think I identified as a Carmen, but the reality is that I was probably just more of a Tibby, um, <laughs> like kind of just like just doing my thing and whatever. Um, but her ability to tap into her anger is exceptional. Like if I had to mm-hmm. go back and be 16 again oh god forbid that would ever happen (laughs) i would not there is not enough money in the world to make me go back to that age but like i would just be like tap into some anger like let that anger out like because at 16 it's not the end of the world and also learning not to repress anger is something that we should teach people when they're young Um, mm-hmm. So I really like that. I've, I've, I really uh, dug that she gets p- 
pissed and she apologizes but she's really just so nurturing with the two kids that she babysits all summer and and she's just such a good analyzer of how other people are doing and and she just she she fixes relationships that's what she does and then but like who's there to who's where who's her soft place to land uh a two mm-hmm. christina mm-hmm. who who is the soft place to land for karma Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do really love with Carmen's uh, storyline the start of her relationship with her stepbrother Paul and the role that he begins to play in her life and we see this role develop over the uh, over the next few books into a really solid lasting friendship and I really like that with his character he never really is a romantic prospect for any of the girls like uh well I mean he and Lena have their little thing but it's like barely a thing really like Mm -hmm. I like deeply into one another's eyes (laughs) yeah well I mean you know Lena's Lena's trying to broadcast her feelings and they're I get the sense I get from that is that Lena and Paul are both people who don't talk about their feelings and as a result they miss their boat yeah (laughs) ask me how I know (laughs) um but I really like that the step-siblings who Carmen starts off on such a bad foot with in the last book. And, and you know, they really don't treat each other like people <laughs> in the first book. Now become real dimensional characters in her life. And um, I really love that there's that, like, Krista sees Carmen as somebody she can come and talk to about, like, hey, my mom's not great. Like, especially because Carmen saw them as kind of a unit. Um, This acknowledgement Mm -hmm. that parents can be not great. And this acknowledgement that kids do not have to be lumped in with their not great parents is cool and and gives me little soft feelings. A little bit. But I really wish we saw parents parenting at any point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Like, even just adequately. Like, I'm not even asking for, like, the best, most supportive parents. I'm asking for adequate emotional support of your children. <laughs> Perhaps this is maybe Anne Brashares, and I can't. I, like, I don't know how everyone calls her. Last week, you you all were calling her Brashares, and I was like, I just say bra and share, and that's it. And Brashares, sisterhood. Yes, thank you, feminism. Uh, <laughs> but I feel like. She may have written this as like a warning for some parents. Like, I feel like this is kind of you want a parent of a teenager to read this and go, hmm, yes, I cannot be so Mm self-involved. Like, oh, yes, my child at the age of 16 may seem independent and like pretend to be an adult, but I actually still have to set some boundaries, you know, and and I feel like there's never any resolution either. And and that's something tough with parenting Mm -hmm. because yes it taps into some reality but like we are in the world of fiction and we can give ourselves a little bit of a break and I mean there is nothing about this story that is trauma porn you know this is like light and fluffy beach reading that you can forget in your hostel sort of thing Um, so, (laughs) so really having these parents be so just crappy Mm -hmm. Just un, like so focused on themselves. But then at some point I realized that like Carmen's mom had her when she was like 22. So I think that there's also that kind of like these very young parents and like B's mother was probably like 21 by the time she had her kids with her like very old 
college professor. So the fact that they have parents that are so young and inexperienced and poor at life might also account for I mean, mm-hmm. I had my kid when I was 22. Yeah, but you're, you're not a <laughs> but, fictional but, character yeah. who is But you did the therapy, Pepper. Well, exactly. So that was actually, that was actually the next place I was going to go with this, is support. Their parent, their young parents who don't have support, and if I had not had support, I would not have been also overwhelmed by my generational trauma and probably been a really shitty parent. And I don't think that that was normalized until, like, I think I was the very beginning of the generations who were having that normalized for them as parents. So, okay, I have kind of a like thorny question. We've asked this question in the past, but my question is, what is the ethics of writing a young adult novel? Do we demand that the parental relationships that are written are healthy and are good? Do we have an obligation to happy endings? Like, what is there an ethical obligation with young adult fiction, basically, that there is not with adult fiction? And if so, what is it? I don't think we need to demand that the parental relationships be healthy. I think we need... Something that bothers me about the parental relationships in this book particularly is that we have we have numerous instances where the main characters are trying to draw boundaries with their parents or call out problematic behavior, um, and the book reinforces that they were wrong to do that. Mm. Um, and I think that is what young adult fiction has a responsibility to not do. That is my short and sweet answer. That's a really good answer. (laughs) So young adult fiction has an ethical obligation to model healthy behavior for teens. But But then, but then, at one point, does that lead to no sexuality in books and no drug use in books and, Mm. you know, banning books? Actually, Um, no. So... I'm not going to say it has a responsibility to model healthy behavior. It has okay. a responsibility to not. It has a responsibility to not normalize or or praise even unhealthy behavior, and particularly around like not praising having a lack of boundaries or um, like stepping back your expectations of how people treat you. Mm-hmm. Like that is particularly like say. Particularly, let's talk about Carmen's relationship with her mother in this book, how she kind of calls her mother out a little bit for, you know, not really acting like a mom um, and for like... For dating. like Yeah. Mm-hmm. For dating but, but and for, completely excluding her kid. Yeah, particularly like, for the way that she like sort of lets... For the way that she acts in an irresponsible way toward her child because of this new relationship. And then the book has Carmen apologize for that later. And and, and the book specifically casts Carmen as having overreacted. Mm-hmm. And that's what I don't like about it, is the way that, like, sort of, like, the meta-narrative, the, the message you're supposed to take away is that Carmen overreacted in trying to set this boundary and, and ask for better treatment. And that's what I don't like. So going to the meta question very quickly, I want to say that I'm, I'm kind of like stirring shit up with these questions because I, <laughs> it's an interesting problem. But I do think personally my line is at I don't think young adult books should normalize abuse. I also don't think adult books should normalize abuse. I think generally we should not normalize abuse in fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but 
I don't think we can fault Carmen for getting upset about her mom dating. I do think that the way Carmen's mom dating is treated in this book is really awful. There's some slut shaming there. There's so much slut shaming. There's so much body shaming. And like, Mm-hmm. You know, I see Christina as a woman who had her kid young, then her husband left her really abruptly. She's been working really hard, and she feels like, oh, Carmen is 16 and dating now. I can start dating. And she gets and she gets carried away. She gets swept up in the re- new feelings of the relationship. She tells herself that Carmen is fine and ignores signs that Carmen is not fine, and those are failings in her parenting. And she does not mm-hmm. adequately prepare Carmen for the realities of her dating like I'm no Christina is not without fault here yeah but I mean I do think that Carmen has some things to apologize for I think they both have some things to, for, to apologize for and and I don't think it's problematic for a teenager to say hey mom I, I was kind of a little shit to you and I'm sorry for being a little shit you made me feel really neglected and abandoned and I'm figuring some shit out you know and it's a parent's job to prepare their child to be able to to do that I don't think kids are ever like I don't think fault comes into it with parent and kid relationships necessarily but I I don't Mm -hmm. think it's like a bad thing for a kid to apologize when they've been a jerk agreed but I think that there is a there's got to be the reverse of that coin as well Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. because I think that I think that there's something interesting in showcasing that resolution to a conflict is not always clear, Mm. right? It's not like, Mm. I'm sorry, we have erased the harm, we're good to go. Like, I think the rebuilding of relationships is really important and normalizing that is is clear and that actions have consequences, whatever the action may be, mm-hmm. there's a consequence. And but I think that because the parents are depicted as so neglectful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very challenging to see that the res- the burden of responsibility falls on the youth. And that it's very much this like bending of the knee and remembering your place as the inferior human to your parents. Yes. And that's, yeah, that's particular. I think the scene where Tibby goes to see her mom after dry, after, after, so Tibby makes this movie about her mom. It's like really mean and she's pissed because, yeah, her mom sucks. And, she literally just shows up at her mom's at three o'clock in the morning and just says, please take me back. Like, I'm so sorry. Take me back. And I was like, that is not how that works. Mm-hmm. It is not mm-hmm. the child's responsibility to accept having been treated poorly. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and if your kid makes a mean movie about you, you think about, huh, I don't like how I was portray- portrayed in this, but these are video clips of me. Right? Like... <laughs> You know, there, there's there's an element of, like, kids do lash out. And mm-hmm. as a parent, your responsibility is to see that lashing out is about them and to center them in that and say, okay, you have a lot of really big, uncomfortable feelings. Let's, let's talk about it. How can I support you? How can I help you? That storyline makes me really mad because I think, I mean, especially with artistic kids, mm-hmm. There is this history of parents punishing their kids for making emotionally honest work. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't love that Brian is telling Tibby to not be emotionally honest in her work because it will hurt her mom's feelings. That is a really dangerous thing to teach kids and youth that being emotionally honest will hurt your parents' feelings and therefore you shouldn't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Why instead? I feel very strongly that kids and youth should be permitted full access to express themselves emotionally, even if it hurts your feelings. You suck it up and you say, wow, I see that you have some really big feelings about this. Let's, how can I support you? How can mm-hmm. I help you? However, I want to come back to Christina real quick because the thing that <laughs> hurts my feelings, <laughs> let's just say, in, in that storyline is that Christina's failures as a parent in the story and Christina's dating are lumped together into the same thing. Mm. Oh, this is good. So the issue is that Christina is dating. And I don't feel that that is teased out adequately. Like, yes, David just like parachutes into Carmen's life. Christina doesn't handle it well. Christina doesn't ease Carmen into it at all. That is a failing. Christina Mm -hmm. wearing a crop top to go out with her boyfriend (laughs) does not make her a bad parent. Christina having sex does not make her a bad parent. Christina having sex and telling Carmen not to have sex does make her a bad parent. Um, (laughs) But like Christina putting her daughter on a diet does make her a bad parent. However, (laughs) but these these aren't distinguished. And I feel like it's never actually treated. There's and and Mm -hmm. the scene that really kind of breaks my heart is when Christina comes back wearing the traveling pants and she says oh I thought you left those out for me as as a peace offering and Carmen just like hits the roof it's like why would you ever think that you'd be allowed to wear those pants you're old you're ugly like I mean yes I feel strongly personally as a young parent as a parent in general that the stripping of sexuality from parents and the idea that being sexual is makes you a bad parent um is really outdated and really gross and that was Mm -hmm. kind of what set me off and i just i want to i want to tease that out like in talking about that i want to make sure those are really distinct because it's okay for christina to have sex it would have been fine if christina had been sleeping with a bunch of different people every week for carmen's whole life that would have been absolutely fine yeah but this as long as she wasn't also slut shaming Carmen. <laughs> That's fair, but yeah. I think that there's something very very clear in in the writing of of Anne Brushers, which is that like you are you must strive to be the Madonna. You must. Mm-hmm. You must. There is no other way of having value as a, a female character if you are not holier than thou. And that's really challenging because we also see it in their kids. Like, I mean, obviously, the four, the foursome of the traveling pants definitely need some therapy. A holy cannoli. <laughs> so Do they need therapy? But I think that they all suffer from this. Okay, I thought the planet was shaking. Oh, no, you forgot um, about the garage door. <laughs> yes, garage door. So, yes, yeah, so I think that there's something about about these characters needing to be so perfect at all times, right? 
Bridget can't just be depressed that her mom is dead and that she might be depressed and that she had sex. Oh my God, poor Bridget oh, no. had sex. She must dye her hair black now and do penance um, because <laughs> she has gained weight from having sex uh, because it makes you sad to have sex if you are not in the confines of marriage. She gained 15 pounds and now she can't do anything she loves. <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> I gained 15 pounds when I got my period. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Same TBH. Um, and then Lena with Costas. Also, when Costas comes back and they have, like, you know, a night of passion and, and he sees her naked and I think they have sex. I think the French version is a little, like, kind of wibbly or she lies about having sex with one of them. Anyways. But I was like, oh, yeah, Lena, you had sex. You're screwed. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> I did it. Um, but yeah, so it's like as soon as sexuality comes into play, right? Brian loves Tibby. But Tibby is uh, an artist who is ase- asexual, I guess. You know, like, and, and so there really is this portrayal of passion, of lust as a driver for like evil you are not good because you are controlled by your lower feelings your lesser feelings and and how dare you not just strive for artistic greatness and only paint the caldera like i mean uh, you know when when you think about lena's character who is greek and who is in love with art it pisses me off that like the only thing she can paint is landscapes like come on like i know i know that you know it'll get better for her but still you know there's this very naive very childlike very restrained window of things and and emotions and sensations that you can have in your body and the truth is when you're 16 you've got hormones coursing through there so you're thinking about things and 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 it has to be okay for the main characters and also has to be okay for their parents to be sexual human beings and and your sexuality doesn't impact your 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 parenting and i think that that's maybe something that ann brashers wasn't aware of in 2003 well when you see their parents you understand why they're uh (laughs) maybe a little sexually repressed no kidding i do think i like that you brought up lena's art and her landscapes as an expression of this kind of restriction um, and and distancing and almost disassociation, really, that I see in, in Lena and B at times um, in the characters with the lesser mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but Lena's storyline, I can't remember if it's the next book or the fourth book, but Lena has kind of a breakthrough storyline where she starts doing portraiture. And I think it's going to be really, mm-hmm. I just like, I want our listeners yeah, to tuck that away. Book. I want you to tuck that away and remember it in your, in your minds, that thing Caddy said, because it comes back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we okay we've barely talked about tibby and we've barely talked about b <laughs> i mean do we want to get into why it's, that is <laughs> so like okay this is getting long yeah, this sorry. is getting long so let's do yeah. a super quick overview we talked a little bit about tibby we didn't talk so much about her her storyline with bailey that's really mm-hmm. actually very touching and moving yes uh exploration yeah. of grief so that happens that's there Mm-hmm. Be also <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Also, just another example of these girls need therapy because, like, what Tibby has needed this whole year is therapy to like process her yeah. friends just died. Um, therapy, and or she care, has had no yeah. outlet to deal with that. 
And I and feel so like she's just repressed the hell out of yes, it. Yes, and I feel like her mom going, "Oh, my 16-year-old daughter whose friend died last summer made a nasty video about me, so I'm going to be mad at her." is just the the greatest bullshit, truly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. B is depressed because she got had because she got sex. <laughs> she got sexed. <laughs> B is depressed. Um, B has a negligent father who's just like yeah, okay, whatever. Finds out that she has a grandmother she didn't know about. Um, B is already oh God covered in her blanket of fat, which is again established as fifteen pounds. And I just I want to make sure this is on the record. I want to make sure this is on the record. Your weight fluctuating by fifteen pounds is so fucking normal and I say this as somebody who in my teens weighed myself twice a day to like because I had because I had an eating disorder let's just make that real clear but like yeah so I have a very intimate idea of how your weight fluctuates throughout your day throughout your menstrual cycle throughout the week when you have big feelings and Mm -hmm. frankly once you don't weigh yourself anymore you gain and lose 15 20 whatever based on your body frame pounds you just do. It just happens. Bodies fluctuate. Our bodies fluctuate. That's how they take care of themselves. So that's stupid bullshit. And I hate it. Fair. Now we know why we haven't talked a lot about B. Oh, my God. So B goes to Alabama to spend time with her, her, her grandma that she doesn't know. She pretends to be someone else. And then she, fix up, she fixes up her grandma's attic, which gives her a chance to go through all of her mother's old things. Discovers that her mom was amazing, kind of like her. And then also discovers about her mom's mental health, which is... That's pretty interesting. Um, and I thought that the fact that not much happens in B's storyline throughout the summer and, and it's very much introspective, I found that really mm-hmm. interesting. Um, because I think those are some of those, like, you know, I think adolescent summers are transformative times. <laughs> um, but I think that for someone to have a transformative summer, there has to be introspection, which the others don't necessarily have quite as much of. Um, so mm-hmm. be finding out where she's coming from to find out where she's going and to inform sort of this this identity construction is pretty interesting, you know, and, and it's through discovering that she comes from something as opposed to just being like this kid who lives in this big house with this man who doesn't speak to anyone and her brother who's weird you know there's 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 something interesting there because otherwise it would be it would only be natural for Beast's character to just sort of wither mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. become just a wallflower and because <laughs> sex one time is horrible <laughs> um, but yeah so I think I think that there's something there's there is something mm-hmm. interesting in that process and I actually like I think we spoke about this a bit off mic but it is a little inspiring and it it definitely forces you to look back on your adolescent self too with a bit of self-conscious a bit of Mm self-compassion yeah Mm -hmm. um um Caddy and I were talking earlier today and I mentioned that like I found this read through I've had a real this week has been a very like introspective week for me I've been doing a lot of thinking this week and one of the things I've been doing is is like fostering compassion for my teen self and I actually found that reading this book really helped me with that because I would read these things that I'm like oh that's terrible that's a bad choice whatever and then I'd be like I thought this way I did these things I had exactly the same feelings as a teenager and and you know and that's okay it's okay it's okay that I 
messed up sometimes and it's okay that I made choices based on what I had available to me you know like and I I think it's so easy because so many of us are embarrassed by our teen years. Embarrassed, you say? I think ashamed is the yeah. appropriate word. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the word that I was actually thinking is cringe. Yes. I think of my teen oh. self with cringe. And what is cringe? Cringe is you moving away. Cringe is when you go, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want that. And I'm trying, I'm in this process of trying to move through the cringe and trying to just say, okay, cringe, what are you telling me? <laughs> Treating it like any other feeling. What am I cringing away from? Mm. What do I not want to see? Mm. Um, what do I not want to confront? Part of that, which is a really intense experience, is reading my teenage journals and also reading my teenage live journals. <laughs> which like listen it's not for the faint of heart but like <laughs> but there's also part of me that goes back to things i wrote when i was 12 13 right my daughter is turning eight this year it's oh, yeah. it's not that far away and i mm-hmm. i look at this and i go oh you were a little baby who had unfettered access to the internet because your parents were boomers um, <laughs> and and you know you were just out there putting your whole life on the internet which that's a different conversation (laughs) that's a different conversation (laughs) but it's been it was really helpful for me to be reading this alongside and saying oh lena Mm. trying to broadcast her feelings to everybody and not actually articulating them that's normal and carmen getting super pissed and lashing out and not remembering people are people and hurting people by accident that's normal and you know tibby honestly like shying away from her feelings and then finding other feelings and and exploring that that's normal and be um running away which is something i relate to strongly that's an urge that i'm familiar with i think we all are because she doesn't want to confront her feelings also super normal and i think it's a really good opportunity rereading books from the era that you were grown that you grew up in to see Mm -hmm. what was normalized and what we were working with because like we were not working with very much and I am so glad that teens these days have much more responsible YA fiction. But I also don't really... There are things I hold against Amber Shares, but there are also things I don't because like this, like you have publishers and you have audience and, and there's a lot going on here. Mm. So anyway, I think I, I come out of this one feeling much more like compassionate and softer than with the other ones. Now, mm-hmm. would I necessarily give this to a teenager these days? I don't know. Oh, but it would be like handing <laughs> no. a teenager a VHS tape. Like, I know. They wouldn't they'd know just what be to like, do what with is it. this? They'd be like, <laughs> why are you talking about connecting to the internet? Like, what is happening? <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, the book doesn't doesn't do the most graceful aging. Yeah. But I also understand and I understand what Bailey was saying earlier on in the episode, which is just that there is something incredibly comforting about seeing girl characters from the early 2000s express emotions. Mm-hmm. Just have emotions and not be like the sweet valley high cookie cutter, like I look mm-hmm. perfect and I can foil any adult into thinking that I am someone else kind of thing. So that is kind of nice to just sit with it and to be emotionally honest and and... I think that that's, you know, developing self-compassion. This has been a journey for me in the past few <laughs> years. Um, but in, develop- in, in in working on my own self-compassion, rereading this is challenging because it forces me to to look at myself 
mm-hmm. as a young person and as a young person who read this and and it's kind of mm-hmm. it's kind of okay yeah. there is there is like a there's a little bit of grace that comes with reading it a second time I find that's that's pretty interesting and hopefully that grace translates to other parts of my life so yeah yeah mm-hmm. cool thanks for listening to yeah if you want to leave feedback suggest a book for us to read or just say hi please say hi send us an email at the yeah podcast at gmail.com you can follow us on twitter or instagram at yeah podcast and individually i'm at teffer bear i'm at the Bilbosaurus. and i'm at caddy double underscore d if you like the show and want to help us make it even better consider supporting us on patreon you can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Reshi, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Penho, Chantal Thomas, Maddie Dever, Megan Jane, Emily Patton, and Emmett Cameron. I want to just make a note on that. I made this commitment last week. I'm holding to it for every new patron that we get in during this read through series. I will release one high school story about myself. Uh, You can get this at any level. Um, Know that I am reading my journals and looking at old photos and I have all all the goods. Uh, so if you're interested in hearing some well-written stories about my wayward youth. And Eunice's wayward youth. <laughs> <by> <laughs> <Eunice's>. <laughs> um, I, I actually found some really, really cute pictures of me and Eunice from grade 12 recently. Uh, join us on Patreon, folks. We want to see these <laughs> photos. Eunice was my voice of reason and many of my headstrong foibles. I will personally add to this in that uh, I will also contribute for every new patron uh, one very embarrassing piece of high school artwork. Because there are a lot of them, including, highlights include the painting inspired by the Twilight book. That is all. We're up in the bids. We're up in the bids. Come sign up because we're up in the bids. All right, folks. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Public. You can also always support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that has that capability, by subscribing on Spotify, and by sharing this episode with a friend. Maybe a friend who, like, you feel real nostalgic about. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Group as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by Tefra Jemian, who's actually sitting across from me, which That's is me. really exciting. And edited by Tom Zalatni. Hi, Tom. As part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all of our great shows on our network at UpfordNetwork.com. Yay! Bye-bye! Yay! Bye! Hi, I'm Howard Mitnick, host of Gateway Music. Join me as I talk with people about the artists and albums that changed their lives and about the artists and albums that changed mine. Available on the Upford Network and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Anthony Giorgio, host and producer of Queer Teen Podcast. Queer Teen Podcast encourages the next generation of queer youth from across the world to stand up for what's right. Listen, learn, and love as you get to know the next queer youth leaders of the world. Queer Teen Podcast celebrates, elevates, and narrates how the LGBTQ community uses our voices to tell our stories. 
You can find Queer Teen Podcasts on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And please, please, please subscribe today. And don't forget to listen, learn, and love.